Well, good evening. Good evening to those of you that are joining us online, assuming there are some people on the other side of that screen. Hope you've had a good week. Had a good week? Yeah? No? Not sure. Um, this evening, we're going to talk about, uh, as Harry said at the beginning, we're going to talk about expectation. I don't know if this has happened to you recently, but um, two or three weeks ago, uh, it was about 8.30 in the evening. I was on my own at home. Tim was out. And uh, I had put my feet up. I was feeling pretty tired. And I was just about to sample the delights of Netflix when there was a knock at the door. And I thought it was a bit strange because I wasn't expecting anybody. It was a cold winter's evening. So I went to the door uh, and was slightly surprised, to put it mildly, to discover a couple of friends standing on the doorstep um, holding a bottle of wine. And uh, they could clearly see the puzzled expression on my face as my brain tried to kind of catch up with what was happening. And uh, they then sort of burst out laughing hysterically because it was perfectly obvious that I wasn't expecting them. And uh, just as they said, you know, should we go away again? I realised and I remembered that we, Tim was out, but we'd invited them around for the evening for, for a glass of wine, our wine, they kindly brought their own, and some cheese and biscuits. And uh, I'd forgotten, I hadn't put it in my diary, so I wasn't expecting them. We did have some wine, they brought some wine, we had some biscuits, but we had absolutely no cheese. But we had a laugh, we knew them well, they came in, and I sent a quick text to Tim, and he miraculously appeared five minutes later with loads of cheese. <laughs> and we had a really, really good evening. But all to say, you don't need me to tell you, that much of what we do on a kind of daily basis, some of the choices that we make, some of the things that we do and some of the things that we don't do, they are based on the expectations that we have of what's going to happen uh, that day, what will happen on any given um, day. And they might be positive expectations or they might be negative expectations. I didn't expect friends to pop over that evening, so I had no cheese in my cupboard. It, it wasn't kind of particularly consequential in the end because it was a small thing. My son was um, offered £20 on the street this week. It's, <clears throat> it was, I don't know if you remember, but it was really, really raining on Wednesday. You know, very sad for the horses. And uh, my son was walking down the road with an umbrella and a couple of Irish guys offered him 20 quid for the umbrella just because they hadn't expected it to rain. So they were absolutely soaking. And uh, if you expected, I don't know, did any of you hit... We, actually, don't put your hand up. Whether you expected to run out of loo roll uh, in the beginning of 2020 when COVID hit. Because if you did you would have been one of those people in the supermarket emptying the shelves of loo rolls because our expectations make a difference to the choices we make. But then there are kind of expectations that have bigger consequences, aren't there? So if you're somebody who, um, I don't know, if, you, if, if you're somebody who expects bad things to happen or expects things not to go well and you, are, you are sort of have negative expectations for your future, you will most likely struggle with anxiety because those are slightly bigger expectations that have a bigger consequence. My son, um, my eldest son, he expected to be able to get a top degree in a top university with no work. So he didn't do any. And I won't tell you what degree he got. <laughs> <clears throat> and some of you will have read about Operation Orbital. Familiar with that? The UK uh, British Army training the Ukrainian armed forces since 2014 when, they annexed, when Russia annexed Crimea. Why have they been doing that? Because they expected that the borders of Ukraine would be breached again. It's one of the reasons why they're doing an, an, such an amazing job, bless them, at defending their nation. Expectations are, ex are significant, aren't they, to our experience of life? because of the, the choices that our expectations either lead us to make or lead us not to make. 
And our expectations of Jesus, our expectations of God, are no different. So the expectations that we have of Jesus affect our experience of Jesus. The expectations that we have of God expect, uh, affect our experience of him to a greater or a lesser extent. So we're going to kind of carry on with our series on meals with Jesus. We're going to look at probably, I mean, I would love to know if more than sort of 20,000 people have ever been fed at one time. I'm sure maybe I should check the Guinness Book of Records. But this story, the feeding of the 5,000, which is in Luke chapter 10, if you've got a Bible, it's going to come up on the screen. It's got to be, you know, it's got to be contender for one of the biggest meals in history. And uh, it's a story about many things. But um, as we'll see, it's a story about expectation. So... I'm going to read it from the message version. I don't know what version you've got, but here we go. When the apostles returned, <clears throat> they told Jesus everything they'd done. Then he slept, slipped quietly away with them towards the town of Bethsaida. But the crowds found out where he was going and they followed him. He welcomed them. He taught them about the kingdom of God. Other versions say he had compassion on them and he healed those who were sick. And then later in the afternoon, the 12 disciples came to him and said, Can you send the crowds away? lovely and compassionate people, send them away to the nearby villages and farms so they can find food and lodging for the night. There's nothing here for them um, to eat here in this remote place. And Jesus said, you feed them. But we only have five loaves of bread and two fishes, they answered. Or are you expecting us to go and buy enough food for the whole crowd? I'm sure there was a hint of sarcasm in that response because there were about 5,000 people there. And they only counted men in those days. So that meant there were 5,000 families on that great big picnic. Jesus replied, tell them to sit down in groups of about 50 each. So the people all sat down. Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, looked up towards heaven and blessed them. And then breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread and fish to the disciples so that they could distribute it to the people. And they all ate as much as they wanted. And then afterwards, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. I think it would have been such a cool picnic to be at, don't you? It would have been epic. So this story, and it will be familiar to many of us, it's about lots of things. Yes, it is about the compassion of Jesus. Jesus is compassionate. He has compassionate on these crowds. He wants to help them. He wants to uh, look after them. And he has compassion on you. You know, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. He's a compassionate, merciful father. He has compassion on you this morning. He'll He'll have compassion on you tomorrow morning. His mercies are new every morning. It is about Jesus' desire to meet our needs. You know, he promises that if we seek first his kingdom, as Harry was saying earlier, he will meet our needs. And yes, this story is about him meeting the needs of that crowd. Yes, it is about his generous provision. Twelve baskets of leftovers. You know, God is the God of much more. He gives us much more than we need because he's a generous father and he, he wants to be and he is that father to you if you know him. And yes, it is about us sharing what we have. Somebody there, I don't know if it was a little boy, I couldn't find it in any of the texts. Somebody had five loaves and two fishes and offered them to the disciples and Jesus did something amazing with it. And yes, it is about him doing you know, amazing things with the small things that we have. And so if you're somebody here this evening and you, know, you feel like what you've got to offer other people, what you've got to offer Jesus, you know, your resources, your time, your abilities, whatever, is, is not very much you know, Jesus will do amazing things with whatever you give him. It is about all of that. But this story, I believe, 
is primarily about a miracle. This is a story about the supernatural power, the supernatural intervention of God. Let's not miss that. You know, there's a lesson in this for the disciples. It's the only story in, the, in all four Gospels other than the resurrection, which was the greatest miracle of all time. You know, Jesus' dead body being brought back to life forevermore, never to die again. This is the only story told in all four Gospels by Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, which tells me they all thought it was such an epic thing for everyone to know. They all thought it was such an epic experience, so life-changing that it had to make the cut for each of them. So let's be careful to make sure we kind of see the point in this story of what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples because he is trying to teach them a lesson. And if we're following him, then that lesson is for us too. So, what is the lesson I think that he wants to teach us this evening and was so specific that the disciples all wanted this story in their text? Look back at uh, verses 13 and 14. There's a couple of verses inserted in Luke's story, and it's also in Matthew's version, it's also in Mark's version, and it's also in John's version. And it's a little kind of snippet of a conversation, of the conversation that Jesus has with the disciples. And if the, if the conversation wasn't there, it wouldn't make any difference to the story, but they all seem to think it's important for this detail to get into the text. What does he say? He says he makes this provocative comment, you feed them as they're talking about the crowd and what to do with them. He says, you feed them, and then they reply with this slightly sarcastic comment, basically saying, well, how? And then John adds a slightly more helpful detail, I think, that gives us a bit of insight into what's going on here. So I kind of imagine that, you know, Jesus has got his crowd of disciples around him. He's got the crowds out there, you know, wondering what to do. And then he's got his crowd of disciples, his, his friends with him here. And he's kind of chatting to them in different bunches. And I imagine him having that conversation that's in Luke with maybe, you know, Matthew and John and, you know, I don't know, Peter saying, you feed them. And then I imagine him turning over to Philip over here, you know, with a bit of a twinkle in his eye and saying, well, Philip, you know, where can we buy bread for these people? That's the question in John. Where can we buy bread for these people? And then John adds this little detail. He says this in verse 6. He was testing Philip. So he asked Philip, where can we buy bread for these people? And then it says he was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. And that didn't involve a supermarket dash to buy picnics for 5,000 people. So what John is telling us is that Jesus had a plan. Jesus knew what he was going to do. Jesus had got this all worked out in advance. But instead of just going ahead and doing it, he wanted this conversation with his disciples. Why did he ask them this question? Why was he provocative in this way? Well, I think the reason is this. I think he wanted to hear his disciples. He wanted to hear Philip and all the others process their response to him suggesting an impossibility. I think he wanted them to hear them speaking their thoughts out loud so that they knew what was going on inside, as it were. How they were going to react to a situation where their resources were limited, where effectively they were being invited to participate in an impossibility. Really, I think what he was saying to them, although he didn't put it like this, was, boys, do you have a kingdom mindset? Except I think if he'd asked that question, what do you think they would have all said? Of course we do. We've been hanging out with you. We've got a kingdom mindset. So instead of asking them that question, he said, well, where should we buy food? What should we do? 
I, um, a number of years ago, many years ago actually, in the early 90s, um, my mum went into hospital for a very straightforward operation. The doctors thought she had peritonitis. They thought it was going to be an in one day and out the next day. And uh, my sister and I rocked up to hospital the following day um, to discover, having, you know, having recovered from the surgery, that they'd opened her up. They'd found a tumour the size of a grapefruit inside her and that she had stage four ovarian cancer. And that uh, the prognosis that they gave her was that um, she had six months to live if she didn't um, have any treatment at all. And she would have two years if they gave her chemotherapy. Uh, the chemotherapy would buy her some more time. And not surprisingly, it was a total shock and we were totally devastated. I was newly married. Um, and that evening, uh, Tim and I, we went to our, the life group that we were part of and I kind of poured my heart out. And I just, I said to the group, I said, please, can we pray for my mum? Please, can we pray for my mum that my mum would be healed? Because, you know, I was a fairly new Christian, but I was, you know, reading my Bible and in my, in my Bible, you know, Jesus healed people. So that felt like the obvious thing to pray for. And uh, the people in that group, lovely Christians, they loved us, they were so kind to us, they were so caring to us, and they prayed and they prayed, but nobody prayed for a miracle. Nobody prayed for my mum to be healed. And I went home that evening, you know, devastated that we didn't have people that were going to stand alongside us and contend with us for my mum. And I don't judge them, it was just an experience that was, you know, what it was. But we, I read my Bible and I kind of felt like, well, God, there's got to be a possibility of you doing something. So, so my sister, who was also a Christian, and, and myself and Tim, well, we, we prayed. We prayed every day. We fasted once a week. We're doing, we've been talking about fasting as a church. Yes, God isn't a slot machine. Fasting isn't a magic button. But there is a clear connection in the Bible between fasting and the power of God. And six months later, when my mother went to have her scan, there was no sign of the tumour anywhere. It was, she was completely clear and she lived for another 20 years afterwards. And do you know what, my, those, those friends of mine in, in, in my, you know, my life, I don't blame them. I can be in that position on certain occasions. There was a human prognosis. I delivered it. I told them what the doctor said. We knew about the statistics. And from a human perspective, there wasn't, a, you know, there wasn't very much hope. That's what happened, I think, in this passage, in this story, Jesus' friends. Many of them, they were successful businessmen, these uh, followers of Jesus. They were good at strategy. They were good at organizing their business. You know, they knew how to make money. They knew how to organize people. They knew how to do stuff. And, uh, you know, if they'd been in charge that day, their, you know, their best thinking, their best kind of solution that they could come up with for this bunch of people was send them home quick before it gets dark. But aren't you glad <laughs> that they weren't in charge that day? Because this story wouldn't be in the Bible and it wouldn't open up a whole load of possibilities for us because we wouldn't know about how God wants to work with his people. So I think the point of what Jesus is teaching is this, what he's teaching them and what he wants to remind us this evening. I think it's this. If we live life based on human perspectives, if we look at everything that comes our way in life just with our human perspective, if we face every challenge with a human mindset, with a human, rational, logical mindset, we are facing it with a limited perspective and we will miss the opportunities for kingdom breakthrough, for God's power to intervene. Because for God's power to intervene, we need to bring a kingdom mindset 
to the situations and the challenges that we face. 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says this in verse 20, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. One of the ways that Jesus demonstrates his compassion is through power. Intervening in people's lives to bless them. And a huge part, therefore, of his training of his disciples was to teach them to have a mindset to expect him to do some impossible things. And there's teaching and training going on in this picnic he wants his followers to expect to have an expectation of the impossible. You know, there's this conversation going on about divorce with his uh, followers, in, with his disciples uh, later on in the book of Matthew. And he's talking to them about marriage and they're like, oh, this is so hard. Who can do this? Who can live according to the way that you expect? Who can be married, you know, in the way that you're describing? And he goes, well, nothing's impossible with God. He wants his followers to have a mindset where impossibilities become possible when he's involved. If you want to check out you know, a bit more of the conversation, reflecting back on this picnic, look at Mark 8, verses 14 to 17. I haven't got time to read it this evening, but Jesus is referring back to what he did. He's saying, beware of the leaven, beware of the mindset of Herod, of politicians and of religious people. Beware of their mindsets. Don't you understand? You know, and he's talking about the fact they still haven't got it into their heads, the kind of thing that God can do. God wants to do. How did Paul say that we're to be transformed and obviously then we're to bring transformation? Romans 12, 2, be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We need a change of thinking in order to see some different things happen. God wants us to look at life, as I've said, with his perspective, not our own human perspectives. Well, that requires us to change the way we think, doesn't it? That's what Jesus is trying to do here, to get them to swap their old way of thinking and looking at problems and looking for solutions for his way of looking at things and looking for, for solutions. So God wants us to change the way we think about ourselves, about God, about life, about relationships, about you know, others, about the way God works, about what, the way he wants to solve problems. He wants to swap our human perspectives for kingdom perspectives. Because it's then that our minds are open to the possibilities of the way that he might want to move. He wants us to have his set of expectation. You know, and bring that to the kind of situations we face. I don't know how you'd feel if somebody rocked up to your home and started moving the furniture around in your lounge. I know I wouldn't be particularly happy about that. But that's effectively what Jesus wants to do with our minds. He wants to move the furniture around. <laughs> It's like this piece of furniture is old, it's going to break, it doesn't work, let's get rid of that and let's put, a new let's put a new perspective in. He wants us to think like he thinks. So when you're reading your Bible and you're, you're praying and you're thinking, you know, I need to do those things, you know, Jesus hasn't invited us to do those kind of things, to just kind of add a little box into our lives, to, you know, to prove that we follow him and, you know, tick the box and we've done that. He wants to change the whole way that we look at life. And look at him, look at his world. Because the more of a kingdom mindset we have, the more we will see of the kingdom come. They're connected. So yes, 
his kind of kingdom mindset means looking at myself differently, looking at some of my life choices differently and agreeing with him, aligning my perspective with him and going, yes, okay, some of the choices I make, yes, they're more damaging to me and they're more damaging to other people than I realize. That's what, you know, changing my mind, repentance means. But it also means looking at, you know, broken bodies, looking at deficits, looking at problems, looking at challenges with his mindset and looking at them differently so that we can bring different possibilities to the table. Because as I've said, there's a link to the ability of God's power to move through us and our, mind, and our level of expectation. They're directly connected. If they weren't connected, what was the point of what Jesus was trying to teach the disciples here? What was the point of what he was saying to Philip? What was the point of his provocation? of these guys why was he trying to raise their expectations if different expectations weren't going to make any difference to what they saw god do a friend of mine was on a she's on a skiing holiday a few years and years ago and uh, she was kind of you know processing this expectation stuff trying to really kind of partner with god about having you know kingdom expectations about different scenarios and you know lucky her she was in a chalet with a and there was a chef in the chalet Who'd like to go skiing with a chef in the chalet? Yes, please. <laughs> she was chatting to this chef one day, because he looked pretty miserable. And uh, it turned out that he'd lost his wallet um, a couple of days previously. And he'd been paid, and his wallet was full of cash. And, uh, you know, not surprisingly, he was pretty depressed about that. And so she kind of thought, well, you know, what would God want to do? You know, here's a problem. What would a kingdom, what would God want to do? And she basically said to him, she took a deep breath, you know, filled her lungs with a bit of kingdom courage. And she said, well, do you know what? I believe that, God, you know, I'm a Christian. I believe in God. And I believe that he's going to return that wallet to you. And when he does, you will know that Jesus loves you. She took a deep breath. Anyway, next day, there was a knock at the door of the chalet and the police rocked up with the wallet, with all the euros in it. A kingdom mindset for a kingdom problem that enabled God to do something supernatural. This week, I read a testimony of um, a chap, a Christian, who works for an international space station. And uh, he and his team, they'd been working on a problem that had been costing them lots of money and hadn't managed to find any solution to. And again, he found himself being challenged about having a kingdom mindset, approaching kind of challenging situations in the, in the way that God might want to approach them rather than thinking about them with rational, you know, all the rational, logical thinking hadn't produced a solution. And so he prayed and he said, okay, then Lord, speak to me about how you'd do this, how you would respond to this. And he went to bed one night and had a dream. And in the dream, you know, he, he saw this solution and saw the problem being solved. And a couple of days later, his boss sort of, you know, asked to have a chat with him. And uh, as part of that conversation, he was able to share with his boss what he'd seen in the dream and share this solution with him. And uh, the boss put it to the scientists and the scientists agreed to put this kind of program into practice and it solved the problem. It solved the problem. So not only did they end up with a kingdom solution that nobody had been able to come up with on their own, but then he, you know, he was surrounded by a bunch of people that were really interested that God was interested in science and technology. Jesus solves problems differently to the way that we humans solve them a lot of the time, whether that's in our relationships or in our communities or in our world. You know, he has a different perspective on so much stuff. And as his kids, since we have access to him, 
as our Father, since we have access to his mindset and his power, we have access to his power through the Holy Spirit. We therefore have access to his possibilities, but we need to have his perspective and be open to it. And so the Holy Spirit, because of that, the Holy Spirit will always be trying to train his followers. So if you're his follower, he will be trying to train you, just like Jesus was trying to train his followers here. He will always be trying to train us to have a mindset for impossibilities. I think, um, I think Jesus, when he tested them, when he provoked them, you know, where can we get this food? What should we do, everybody? Do you know what? The answer I think he was, I, he knew what answer he was going to get, didn't he? He just, he wanted them to hear themselves speak it out. But I think the answer he was really longing to hear was, Jesus, you can do everything. All things are possible with you. You know what to do. You know how to do it. So you just tell us what to do and we'll go off and do it. Which is basically what Mary did, wasn't it, at the wedding of Cana? Jesus knows how to fix the fact that there's no wine, so just do what he tells you. She had a kingdom mindset. He was wanting these boys to have one. He wants us to have one. He was trying to raise their expectations, and he wants to raise yours. So question, how big are your expectations of God at the moment? How big are they? How do you approach the challenges in your life, the problems in your life? Because how you do will give you a clue. Some of the steps that you take or don't take will give you a clue about what kind of size expectations you have of your God. The size of your prayers will also give you a clue about how big your expectations of God are. Somebody once said, the size of our prayers reflects the size of our God. I think they're on the money there. Tozer, who's another favourite author of mine, he said something similar. He said, a low view of God is a cause of a hundred lesser evils, but a high view of God, as in big expectations of a big God who can do all things, is the answer to 10,000 problems. Don't know about you, but I agree with him. I think Tozer's on the money as well. We're confronted, aren't we? Our world is confronted all the time about all kinds of challenges and problems but I think our biggest challenge is the size of our view and the level of our expectation of God it's camping season coming up isn't it anyone going to wildfires new wine anyone booked in for new wine and all the other stuff (laughs) I'm not a fan of camping I'll be honest Uh, I don't like the cold it's always cold in August. Why is it cold in August in this country? I'm always cold in new wine. And one of the things that happens to us, because we have naff mattresses in our family, is that I go to bed on a pumped-up mattress, and I wake up the next morning, and the mattress has deflated. Oh, lots of nodding. You know what it's like. Mattress is deflated. Might not have deflated completely, but it's deflated. Not good. And do you know, I know that that can happen And it does happen frequently to my expectations of God. And if it happens to me, it probably happens to many of you. I can have great expectations of him. I can be inspired. I can be full of faith. I can be, you know, walking around thinking, yes, I believe God can do anything. And then life happens and disappointments happen and prayers don't get answered. And things happen that I don't expect to happen or whatever. And, you know, my 
my mattress of expectation, it gets deflated. And before long, you know, there's not much air left in my expectations. And do you know what? I think that's just part of doing life on this earth. It's part of the now and the not yet of the kingdom. It's part of the stuff that we don't understand. If we have big expectations of God and we go after things and we believe for the impossible and we step out and we pray prayers and we expect to see God move, we are going to be disappointed. Not because God is intending to disappoint us, but because it's life on this earth. We live in a battle zone. But we can respond in one of two ways to that. We can allow the air to go out of the mattress of our expectation and just go, well, that's it. You know, I've had these experiences, whatever. Or we contend and we can allow the Holy Spirit to reflate, you know, to in- inflate maybe is the word, to inflate our expectations in the way that Jesus was trying to do here. And God is reminding me, he's been reminding me over the past couple of months, and I believe he wants to remind us this evening to be really careful, really wary of anything that suffocates my expectations of him. Because as his kingdom child, he wants me to walk while I'm on this earth with expectations of the fact that anything is possible with him. So that people that encounter me and that people encounter you can encounter a God of the impossible. And so maybe, you know, think about, have a think about this week. What reduces your expectations of God? What kind of things reduce your expectations? You know, if I have my head in the news too much, <laughs> it feels like everything is impossible. If I have my head in the Bible, if I have my head in the Gospels, and I read stories like this, my expectations begin to rise again. You know, let's pay attention to what lets the air out of the mattress and what puts the air back in. You know, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, wants to grow our expectation. He trains us. It's a journey. He's doing it with his friends here. But we can either participate with him or we can resist it. Yes, there are things to wrestle with. There's disappointments to to own and be real about. You know, there's ignorance. I don't know what God says he can do. You know, let's be real about that stuff and wrestle with it. Yes, there's, you know, surrendering to do, courage to be taken, whatever. But in this story, Jesus is refusing to let his followers hold on to their human perspectives. He's refusing to let their current expectations of what God can't do with them and through them be shaped by their existing experiences. He's wanting to raise them. He's wanting to raise the bar, raise their expectations so that he can do more through them in the future, which is what happened. And do you know what? He wants to do the same with us.